0: Good evening. evening. You now have my permission to put your snow shovels away. I think we're okay. We may get frost yet, but I don't think we're going to get more snow. I hope not. I guess the Indians would have been glad for a snow day today. Aren't you glad your life isn't based on how well the sports teams do? All right, that's enough of that. Let's get down to something that's going to last longer. Acts chapter 8 tonight. If you are uh, here and have not been with us for Sunday nights for a while, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. As a kid, I remember trying to figure out why there was an Acts in the Bible. The activities of the apostles, the actions of the apostles, really the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he was physically gone, he was still very much at work in the lives and hearts of his people. And we come now into Acts chapter 8 tonight. I'm going to read a passage here, and then we're going to fill in some background. From verse 1 of Acts 8, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death at Stephen. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Those, therefore, who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds were with one accord, with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the last time we talked about the basic plan of God that he revealed to his apostles and, and uh, basically becomes an outline for the book of Acts. The Lord's instruction to the early church was to wait in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Witnesses, first of all, in Jerusalem and then in the region around Jerusalem, which is Judea, that old southern kingdom part of Israel, and then Samaria, which was a mixed breed um, apostate population that had some remnant of Jewish Genetics, but had also Gentile blood mixed with it, and it was an area against which the Jews were very deeply prejudiced. And so it speaks not only of a geographic boundary, but of boundaries of prejudice, of all kinds of prejudice, which, of course, are many times far harder to reach across than physical boundaries, those invisible boundaries that our minds are closed to, that's Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And we we saw briefly an outline of how that unfolds through the book of Acts. We have seen in these first seven chapters how that the events of the first seven chapters primarily occur in the city of Jerusalem. And now in chapter 8, we are going to see the church of Jerusalem become scattered through a wide, wide area. Now, some of the early converts who were visiting, if you will go back with me to chapter 2. And notice in verse 5 that there were Jews in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. There were Jews from all over the world. And they were back in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. The word Pentecost refers to 50 days after Passover, and it was the a time when the first fruits of the spring harvest would be brought in. It was a celebration of God's bounty and blessing upon his people. And every spring, the men and women would come from all over the world to Israel. So there are men from all over the place. Verse 6, when this sound occurred, this uh, the sound of the Holy Spirit coming down upon them in the first four verses of, uh, of the passage here. The crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them, the people from out of town, was hearing them, the disciples, and their, their group that was with them in the upper room, speaking in his own language. They were amazed and astonished Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And uh, the rest of that question is, everybody knows that Galileans are illiterate and uneducated people. How can they be speaking in all of these languages from all over the Roman Empire? That's amazing. It's incredible. What's going on? And how is it in verse 8 that we are hearing each of them in our own language to which we were born? Now we have a list of the nations that are represented. A partial list, no doubt. And the first four or five are from the north and east of Israel. The Parthians, Medes, and Elamites are over in the area we call Iran today, the Tigris-Euphrates River, and east, parts east over toward Pakistan. And the residents of Mesopotamia would be between the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, today's Iran and part of Iraq. And then Judea and Cappadocia. Now Judea at times referred to the southern kingdom But under the kingdom of David, David's power actually reached all the way up into Syria, all the way to Damascus and beyond. And uh, so this may, Judea sometimes is a reference to an even larger area. Uh, And it seems to be that he's working his way in thought from the north and east down into uh, the Syrian area and then over into Turkey because Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, those five, are all part of Turkey. So he has said from the far eastern reaches of the Roman Empire all the way through Asia Minor, Turkey, and now he goes all the way down into Egypt in verse 10, south and west of Israel, and then Libya, which is is way over farther in Africa beyond Egypt. And there's people that come from there every year for these Jewish festivals all over the place. The Libyan city of Cyrene is mentioned there, as well as visitors from Rome. Verse 11 says, there's Cretans from the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, and Arabs, people from the south and east of Jerusalem. Here we have this huge list of people that have come from all over. They're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They hear the gospel being preached in the language that they speak back home Nobody in Jerusalem has studied that. There's no linguistic school in Jerusalem for people that want to preach the gospel in other languages, and this is a miraculous work of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. Now, every year, those people would come for the festivals, and they would go home. Now, they couldn't all afford to come every year, but they would come for the festival, the whether it was Passover, Pentecost, or the Feast in the Fall, the Feast of Tabernacles, and then they would go home. and They they would travel all over the Roman Empire. Now, many people think that all of the people that got saved on the day of Pentecost stayed in Jerusalem. I don't think that makes any sense because some of those people couldn't afford to stay Now, evidently, some stayed who couldn't afford to stay because, remember, the the Christians started selling their houses so they could feed everybody that was around. But I don't think it's reasonable to think that all of the believers that that first were saved in the first few weeks of the church, I don't think they all stayed in Jerusalem. My point here is this. I think the gospel is already starting to spread very early in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts does not actually tell us that. I, I want to make that clear. This is my reading between the lines here. Uh, and we're, this is going to come into focus in Acts chapter 8, because some people believe that the persecution that God brought on the church in Acts chapter 8 was a punishment on the church because they were being disobedient. They were not obeying Acts 1.8. Go. And so God had to do something to make them go. I take a little different angle on that. Number one... As we're seeing here in chapter 2, I think there were probably people who were already taking the gospel back to their home areas all over the Roman Empire. In, verse, uh, in chapter 5, if you will look there, in verses 12 through 16, the uh, the apostles are doing signs and wonders in Jerusalem. The church is gathering almost daily in Jerusalem the temple area called Solomon's Porch or Portico, a a columned roofed area around the Gentile court where thousands of people could gather. Christ often preached there. Uh, he, He preached John 10 there and other passages. But look at verse 16. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with the unclean spirits and they were all being healed. The gospel has reached out beyond Jerusalem by chapter 5. The word is spreading. There's miracles being done again in Jerusalem. There are still people in Jerusalem who can heal. Even though Jesus is gone, there are still people who can heal in Jerusalem. Now, if you know that and you have a sick relative, what are you going to do? You're probably going to make a trip to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And that's exactly what was going on. So the word is spreading of the apostolic ministry, and I suspect the gospel going with it uh, in many places. One more passage, if you will, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And I mentioned this last time the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, the priests, most of the priests who worked in Jerusalem did not live in Jerusalem. They were divided up into sections, and at certain times of the year, the priests from a certain region of Israel would come to Jerusalem, and it was their turn to work in the temple. And they would work in the temple, and when their work was done, they went home. An example of that in the New Testament is Zacharias, when he was in the temple, offering up incense and prayers And the angel of the Lord spoke to him and told him his wife was going to have a child. Well, he went back home to his hometown when his work as a priest was done until his next turn. And so these priests who are getting saved, they did not live in Jerusalem. They had temporary housing in Jerusalem, but they would go back to their hometowns. So I suspect that the gospel was being spread to other parts of the land of Israel by these priests who had come to realize that Christ was indeed the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. So as we look back at these things, I don't think it's correct to assume that the church has been disobedient in spreading the gospel. Certainly that has not been a focal point of chapters 1 through 7, that the gospel is spreading, but I think it is. Not yet in a major way, but it is starting, can we say it's starting to leak out of Jerusalem? It's starting to, to, to move out. Now, there's another, a couple of other factors in this. Remember, God does not send out babes to the battlefield. There are a few cases in Scripture where God miraculously worked in someone's heart, and, I mean, immediately they start in, in public ministry, but that's really rare. The general pattern, especially in the New Testament, is that babes in Christ are nurtured and grow and learn and are trained and taught, and they begin to minister and they grow in ministry. Timothy is a prime example. He was ministering in two local churches in Acts chapter 16. Paul meets him, says, come with me, and he takes him for years and teaches and trains him. So think about this. If you go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, Why did God have the local church stay in Jerusalem for a while? In verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, on the very first day of the preaching of the resurrected Christ, the gospel being preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, verse 42, the result was they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' what class? Teaching. Teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Do you think that the apostles had more than a few things to teach? Was it a one half hour lecture? It wasn't four lessons and a poem. It, it was intensive, extensive, prolonged doctrinal exposition for these Jewish people and for the proselytes from the Gentile world who also had gotten saved. Um, We find in verse 46, day by day, they are continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house or taking meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart. But they're day-to-day, continuing with one mind in the temple. Why did people go to the temple? Not only to give sacrifices, but there were the huge areas there where the rabbis would teach. And that's where Jesus taught. Very often was in the Gentile court of the temple. The, The temple mount could hold tens of thousands of people standing around or sitting down. And so when Christ stood up in the temple and said things like, uh, I am the light of the world, and those kind of things. Tens of thousands of people heard him say those things. And so these people are gathering together in the temple. And the nice thing about Jerusalem is that almost every day of the year, you can sit outside and it's comfortable. Now, once in a while, you need a sweater or a raincoat, but not very often. And so it, it was like having church every day, seminary every day. Professor Peter started off with the first class and Dr. James with the second class and, and Professor John with the third class. I mean, they just, they just taught, and taught and taught and taught. What's the church doing? It's growing. It's learning. It's maturing. They're having to overcome all of their Jewish uh, th- limited thinking about the c- ceremonies and the rituals of the law and realize that the central message is a person, not a method. A person, not a religion. A-, a body that God is building, not a building in Jerusalem. Notice in chapter 3 and verse 11, after Peter and John healed a man in the morning... That man was clinging to Peter and John, and all of the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Again, they're in the temple teaching. We see them again, chapter 5 and verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. What were they doing, just hanging out? No, there was instruction There was teaching going out. The church has to grow, it has to learn, it has to mature. Not just grow in number, but grow in depth, grow in understanding. It takes time to equip a local church. And especially with the task that God knew that he had for this church, he was getting ready to send these people out all over the Roman world, and they had to be ready to go. Now that's not if if they get saved in chapter two, it's not going to happen by the end of chapter two. It's going to take a little while. Now I I have no idea how long it is from chapter two to chapter eight. That is as far as time is concerned. We don't know. So the, one of the one of the main reasons that I think that Acts chapter eight. Persecution and scattering of the church was not for disobedience is because God had a purpose here of teaching and training the church. This, another thing is that the early chapters of the book of Acts do not show us a disobedient, stubborn, obstinate church that refuses to go. Every picture of the early church other than Ananias and Sapphira who had their own problem and the Lord took care of that very quickly in chapter 5. Everybody else is is wanting to obey. They are wanting to learn. They're wanting to grow. They're glorifying God. They're listening to the apostles. They're coming. They're selling their homes. They're giving away everything they have to help the local church. They're fully characterized by obedience. Look at chapter 4. There's a summary statement here in chapter 4 and verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were the common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Would the writer of Acts be able to say that to a disobedient body? I don't think so. There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. That doesn't happen in a selfish, disobedient, stubborn, rebellious church. There's a picture here in the early chapters of an obedient, learning church desiring to serve the Lord. So I think the Lord was giving... The church, time to grow. I think there's one other aspect to this, is that that God was giving the Jews in Jerusalem one last major opportunity to respond. And when you think about that for a few minutes, it is a marvelous act of grace. Have you ever wondered why God didn't come down and destroy Jerusalem after they crucified Christ? I mean, if that had been your son, what would you have been doing? you have been ready to wipe him out. I was reading recently a historical account of, 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 a, of a Jewish movement after World War II. Six million Jewish people that were killed by the Nazi regime and others during World War II. There was a movement of partisans, of Jewish freedom fighters who had fought during World War II in the various countries of Europe that got together after World War II and developed a plot to kill six million Germans. Did you ever hear of that? It's a true story. They developed a plot to try to poison the water supply of several major German cities, and they were going to kill six million Germans, and they didn't care who it was because the Germans hadn't cared who they were. Now, that's, a, that's the way men think. That's the way we think. But here is God to the very city that ultimately rejected and crucified his son. And he extends to them months and months and months of preaching and teaching and invitation to come. From the common man in the street to the beggar by the temple gate, to the Jewish officials, the Sanhedrin, the council. And they make the mistake of arresting people for preaching. Now listen, if you don't like preaching, don't arrest someone and bring them into your courtroom and ask them what they're doing. Okay, I'm just saying. But that's what the council did. And we don't have time to go into those accounts, chapters 5 is full of it, and Stephen in chapters 6 and 7, they arrest the apostles because they don't like what the apostles are doing, and then they give them the floor. And, and they let them have it. I mean, they tell them, you men are the ones who crucified the Savior. And the one that God sent is the one you have destroyed. But God has raised him up, and we are witnesses of his resurrection. Amen. So God is giving Jerusalem another opportunity to repent. How like the mercy of the Lord. And he lets it go on for probably months and months. And the rejection continues to the point where they martyr Stephen in chapter 7. So perhaps it is that the patience of the Lord by chapter 7 has said that's enough. I'm going to withdraw the gospel now in its major influence, I'm going to withdraw the gospel from the city of Jerusalem. And, and other than going through Acts chapter 15, the city of Jerusalem really loses its influence in the early church. So I'm just making some of these observations with regard to what it is that is going on when God brings persecution in Acts chapter 8. So with some of these things in mind, by way of background, let's begin to look then at the text itself. And Let me read again the first three verses of Acts chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting them to death. The word hearty agreement is to think well of it with them. Saul is saying to the Jews, hey, what you did with Stephen, that's a really good idea. That's a really, really good idea. I like that idea. In fact, I'm going to use that idea myself. He is in full accord thinking with them that they've come up with a good idea. And so on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Now, just take a look at a couple things, and it it begins to look confusing. So on that day, in the middle of verse 1, a great persecution begins, and they're all scattered out throughout all the regions. So it sounds like they're already gone. But then in verse 3, Saul's around Jerusalem ravaging the church, going from house to house and dragging men and women and putting, how can you be doing that if they're all gone? All right, so so these verses aren't sequential. They're thematic. Verse 1 gives us a summary. Persecution arose, everybody got scattered. How did that happen? Well, Saul was going around from house to house. And as a result, everybody left. So it's not stated in that order, but I think that's the order of events. This was a process. This was a process of persecution. It started when when Stephen was rejected by the council. They stoned him for blasphemy. Saul was there giving his consent, and Saul began a persecution. Saul was probably not alone in this but he was a key factor. And this persecution which came is the word, the word for persecution, it comes out of the word that means pursuit, to pursue. All right, Saul wasn't just passively sitting on the street corner seeing if he could overhear some preacher. He was going after them. He was aggressively pursuing Christians. And the, the, the scriptures don't go into detail, and, uh, and I don't know if there's any historical account of, of what they did with these people in prison, but it wouldn't surprise me if they beat them and tried to drag out of them the names of other people that they knew who were believers. That has been the tactic of, of uh, the persecutors of Christ and the church ever since uh, long ago. That, so it's that pursuit. This persecution is a pursuit It's a very systematic persecution. Uh, The the idea here is not just of a randomness, but systematic. It's street by street. It's house by house. It's north, east, south, west. It is everywhere. It was like the Gestapo in World War II. It was like the KGB in Russia. It was like wiretapping now and social media. I mean, there's, there's just not much that, people can't find out about you. Very systematic. And thus, eventually, the church was scattered. It was scattered uh, far and wide. We'll come back to that. This word to ravage in verse 3, when Saul began his systematic persecution, it is the idea of injury and hurt, of devastation, of treating disgracefully, and if you have read anything historically of persecution, if you've read anything of the persecutions that, going on, that go on today, there is, there is just no debauchery, there is no level of baseness that mankind will not go to to persecute Christ. There is nothing despicable that the world will not do to hate Christ. Absolutely nothing. The worst things we have imagined, they have things worse. And they've done it. And they will continue to do it. Persecution. Christ said, don't be surprised. They hated me first. They're going to hate you. Now, these are people who've done nothing wrong. These are law-abiding citizens. These are people who are going down to the temple and worshiping God. These these are solid citizens. But they're being persecuted by the Jews because they dare to believe that a man is God. They can't have that. They're not ready to receive the Messiah. So Saul is ravaging the church. Now, the the words ravaging, entering, dragging, and committing are all continuous action verbs. They are not saying it just happened one time. This was going on and on and on and on. Saul was entering houses and entering houses and entering houses and entering houses and entering houses. He is dragging people away and dragging people away and dragging people. It was going on and on continuously. It's just one little verse. But it could have been weeks or months. We don't know. But this persecution was extensive. There there was probably not a house in the city of Jerusalem that Saul did not invade. To see if any there were followers of this way, of this one, this Jesus of Nazareth. And when he did find them, he put them in prison. We don't know how many languished in prison, how many were Executed. We don't have those records and that information. But someday we'll meet them all in glory. Praise God. They have a very special place near God's throne. Those who have given their lives for Christ. So here's this man thinking to do God's service, as he tells us later. And by the way, um Look with me over at Acts chapter eleven and verse nineteen and twenty. <clears throat> As we get ready to look at this scattering from the persecution, look at eleven nineteen. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but to the Jews. And there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Do you see that this persecution was the same one in connection with Stephen? It was that death of Stephen that kicked it off. That was the, that was the spark that ignited the idea in Saul's mind and others, hey, let's just get rid of all of these people. And so we have a record of the first persecution of the church. It brings to our mind a lot of questions about why God would do this. Why didn't he just send an angel down to the church and say, okay, you've learned your doctrine. You've seen the signs and the miracles. You understand the authority of Christ. You know the resurrection of Christ. It's time to go. It's time for this group to go to Galilee. It's time for this group to go to Egypt. It's time for this group to go to Persia. Could God have done that? Absolutely. He did it in Acts chapter 13. He said to the church in Antioch, separate me two men, and I'm going to send them out. Could God have done that at Jerusalem? Certainly he could. I would recommend you don't try to strain your brain too far understanding the ways of God. They are what they are, and they are perfect. Amen. They are perfect. And I'm going to give you one word tonight in verse four that I think gives us the key to the whole series of. Of events in Acts 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to Samaria. Those who had been scattered. The word scattered that is used in that verse is the same word that the farmers used to scatter seeds. In the field, it means to sow seeds. The church thought they were being persecuted. God was sowing seeds. Man does not see what God sees, man does not know what God knows. God knows that it is time. And, and so, you all and I have, have taken a little um, beautiful yellow flower after it turns to seed. I know some of you really get concerned about those things in your lawn, so I'm not going to say the name of them. <clears throat> I, I think they're pretty myself. <clears throat> but you've taken the seed head. And that's what God did in Acts 8. Now, he used Saul, and unfortunately, some people suffered greatly. Probably many lost their lives. Some of them lost their homes, their livelihoods. They lost loved ones. But God was taking the seeds, and he was throwing them out into the winds to blow to the four corners of the Roman world. He now had mature seed. Mature seeds. The trees right now don't have any mature seeds on them. The the birch trees have their blossoms. But if you took those blossoms, they're worthless. If you wait a few weeks until the seeds mature and then scatter them, ah, the mature seed Will bring forth fruit. So that word scattered is God's work of sowing his field, the field of the Roman Empire. And then it says they went out. They went out. And the word to go out does not mean to go to a stopping point, to go to a destination. For instance, if you're taking a winter vacation and you're going to go down to sunny Florida, you may be going to Florida, but you might get there by flying through Atlanta. And this is the word to pass through. So what is it saying? He is sending the church out and they're going to keep moving. They're going to keep going. They're not all going to stay in the first spot they land. And and we think we live in a fairly mobile society. This was a very mobile group of people. God scatters them out to pass through one area on the way to another, on the way to another, on the way to another. And then we read in verse 4, it says, They went about preaching the word. The word preaching is the word that you and I recognize in English as the word evangelize, and the word evangelize has, is a combination of two words. The E V in the original was E U, the same as the word euphemism or eulogy. When you do a eulogy, you 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 say nice that you say nice things about someone. You say well things. It's the idea of wellness. So evangelism is is a message of wellness. A messenger preaches a message of wellness. You know, you have the message which people need in order to have spiritual wholeness and wellness and life, abundant life in their own life. These people went out announcing the message of wellness in the word. They went out... I, I, for us to turn the word good news, we, we sometimes use the word good news as a translation of evangelism or evangelizing. But, but good news is still not a verb. This is a verb. These people were doing this. And so we could say they were good-newsing the word. Or we could say they were gospelizing the word. We have to find some kind of a verb here, okay? Okay. To show us in the text what's going on, This, this was activity. They were going out doing this. And these are the saints, not the apostles. We've noted that previously. It was not the apostles who were scattered at this time. It was the church folks. Now we see why they needed to be matured for a while before they went out. Because it wasn't the apostles who were going Now, we've spent quite a bit of time in four verses, and we're supposed to get through four chapters and four messages. But the reason I've done that is because these few verses here are pivotal to the entire testimony and flow of the message of the book of Acts and the ministry of the early church. These four verses are a swiveling point. Everything is one way and then Acts 8 happens, and then everything is a different way. And if we don't catch that, we're going to not understand how we got where we are later in the book. I do want us to take a few minutes to talk about Philip because Philip is one of the first ones who was scattered. Philip, verse 5, went down to Samaria. Now, why did these people leave? Well, some people left before they were persecuted so that they wouldn't be persecuted. Some people may have left after they got out of jail and said, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. Let's go. Have you ever heard of a refugee? That's what these people are. They're refugees. They're, hurry up, Mom, pack everything in the suitcase. We're leaving. And you leave everything you've ever had behind and what you can carry on your back you go and you start walking or running, whichever the case may be. And the first of those recorded here was Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he began proclaiming Christ to them. That's, quite an act, that's actually quite an amazing thing that a Jew would go down and preach Christ to the Samaritans. This is, a, again, a work of grace. People are amazed, astounded by what Philip has to say. They see the signs that he is performing. He is, there's the casting out of unclean spirits. There are people who are being healed. So much so that in verse 8 it says, there was much rejoicing in that city. There was much rejoicing. In that. Samaria was becoming a place of joy in the hearts of many people because of the message of the gospel that came through Philip. Now there's this, the account of one man who made a profession of faith. In verse 9, his name was Simon. There's a practicing magician in the city. Uh, This doesn't mean that he had a show at the the Children's Museum on Friday afternoon. What this means, he was a sorcerer and he's involved in the occult. Uh, This was a man who was serving Satan. And he was astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man... Is what is called the great power of God. Wow. That's deception. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. These were people who had been deceived by this... uh, Magician Simon. In verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And so the the gospel begins to work somewhere besides Jerusalem. And of all places, it would have to be Samaria. If I could put that into a modern application for The current city of Jerusalem, this would be like the people of Jerusalem going down to Gaza and going through the gate and ministering in Gaza. That's how extreme it was. If you're not up to date on what's going on in Gaza, that won't mean as much. All right, we are going to end here in the middle of the story of the sorcerer, and we're going to pick it up next week. But I want to leave you with this reminder that this chapter 8 is pivotal in in the message of the book. It explains how the gospel got from one place to the entire Roman Empire, all through the work of torment by a man named Saul. God had other plans for Saul, wonderful plans. And there's another picture of grace there that we'll see another time. There is no one outside of the reach of God's grace. Not even Saul. Not even a man who hated Christ. You talk about drama. Who needs the TV? There's all kinds of drama in here. Amen? Amen. God help us. I trust God will enrich you as we continue in our studies. Will you stand with me as we pray and then we'll sing a verse